just a handful of Sundays ago, it was actually three Sundays ago, we, we looked at Job 31. We wrapped up that chapter. We spent a couple weeks in it where Job defended ten personal traits of his own that his friends were attacking. Do you remember what they were? I didn't. I had to go back and look at my sermon scripts. So I understand if you don't remember what they were. It's, we move through so much material so fast, it's, it's tough to remember everything. But I'll refresh your memory. They attacked his purity, his integrity, his fidelity, um, his impartiality, his charity, devotion, hospitality, his honesty, his transparency, and then his duty. Those are the things that, that were under siege in the friend's speeches against Job. Uh, upon hearing Job lay out his defense in chapter 31, where he defended all those characteristics, after listening to Job's defense throughout that whole chapter, the friends concluded that none of them could convict Job of any wrongdoing, nor could they get him to repent of the hidden sin they thought him, he had. Uh, they just couldn't stop him. And he uh, essentially, or they essentially gave up. They, they, they had said everything that they could say, and just sort of after 31, that's it. We're just done. We, we can't reach this guy. That was their attitude. And so from 31 on, they, they choose to be silent. And I think we would all agree, if you've read Job or been with us for any length of time, you're, you're kind of glad they chose to be silent because the speeches were harsh and, and cruel and uh, intensifying as they went on, and it was just a mess. Their thinking was that, you know, Job's suffering, it has to be the result of hidden sin, but he will not listen to us. We have tried to expose his wickedness, we've tried to get him to own it, but he only mocks us by touting his own righteousness, and now they're assuming or thinking he's just a lost cause. There's no sense in carrying on with this fellow because he's lost. This is their attitude. This is what's going through their minds. There was, however, another friend in the background who was listening to everything. He'd been listening from the get-go, from the very first chapter and where, where Job begins to speak in chapter 3. He'd, he'd been listening from that, the onset of this whole thing. And he had not only heard what was said by the three friends and Job, he carefully listened to and analyzed their words and just kind of respectfully waited for an opportunity to share his own insights. His name was Elihu. Um, I ask for your grace as I will probably call him Elihu and Elihu and... Uh, right? You know how that works. Remember uh, Augustine and Augustine, and remember that? So uh, I think it's Elihu. Of course, Bruce came in this morning and said, that's not the way it's pronounced. And I said, I'm going to have to rewrite my sermon. <laughs> it's spelled exactly the same, but, you know, you get into your mind. So I think it's Elihu, but in any case, he was there, and he was there the whole time, listening and analyzing very carefully. I think he's the smartest guy in the group because he's spending more time listening, and there's such great wisdom in listening. He's the youngest guy there, and I think he's also the most knowledgeable, probably the wisest in the group, 
easily wiser than the three friends and in some ways wiser than Job. There are several things, I, I think at least three, that suggest that Elihu possessed a superior wisdom to the whole group. Not as much Job, but somewhat. First, it is the content of his long speech. Unlike Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Elihu did not focus on any potential hidden sin that may have caused Job's suffering. That wasn't his focus. Uh, he focused on apparent sin, sin in the moment. And you could be thinking, what sin in the moment? Job wasn't sinning. Well, according to Elihu, he was. And I'm thankful for Elihu's wisdom in his speech because he reveals it. What it is is that sin seems to have developed in Job while he was defending himself against all of those accusations, against those three friends. You know, we know that Job did not sin himself into suffering. Chapters 1 and 2 established that he was a righteous, blameless man. Those chapters are not declaring that he was perfect. They're just saying that he hadn't done anything to cause his suffering. We know this. But during his suffering, he developed an inflated view of himself as he argued with his three friends. He kind of puffed himself up as he's having to defend himself. Although I don't think it was intentional, it happened. What did he do? He began to present and defend a perfect, flawless version of himself which led him to draw other wrong conclusions, namely that God owed him an explanation, that God owed him restoration, that God owed him justice for his wrongful suffering. He developed a kind of self-focused view and, and just kind of exalted himself. And, and it kind of, in some ways, he's written some spectacular things about God, but he's also questioned God at a level that's beyond anything that's, that, that would be healthy and right. I mean, I've had a 20-year relationship with the Lord, and I'm not better than Job. I think if I was in Job's shoes, I would have probably sinned much worse than he did. But I don't know about you, but I'm not in the habit of making demands of God. I don't know where you're at in your walk, but that's just not who I am. Do you make demands of God? Do you, have a, do you think that he owes you something other than hell? Have we not seen Job say, if I could just appear in his heavenly court, I would argue a case, his, my case, and, and God would have no choice but to exonerate me. I mean, these are the things that he has declared. And we have kind of marveled at his words and his descriptions of God, but, but can you hear the self-righteousness in that and the pride? Can you hear it? Because it's there. And one of the things that separates Elihu from the friends is that they're focusing on the potential for sin in the past. Elihu is saying, you're sinning now, man. You are sinning now through self-righteousness and pride. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar saw Job's defensive speeches as a series of mere feeble attempts to cover up his past hidden sins. Elihu saw them as prideful, self-righteous boasting, sin in the now, apparent, obvious sin. And each section of Elihu's speech is very corrective. 
He not only seeks to challenge Job's inordinately high view of himself, his prideful self-righteousness, but some of the twisted theology he embraced or kind of adopted as he's espousing uh, the things that he espoused while he's suffering. Elihu saw what the others could not see. He saw some pride, some self-righteousness, and some bad theology developing in Job. And this makes him more discerning and wiser than the other friends. Second thing that makes Elihu wiser is the fact that Job never refutes him. There are eight speeches total by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and there are eight counter-speeches or refutations from Job. Why? Because Job disagreed with them, didn't he? And rightfully so. There is only one long speech from Elihu, but there is no counter-speech, no refutation from Job. Nothing. Why? Is it because God interrupted the narrative and started to speak? Well, that certainly happens, but I don't believe that's why. I believe it's because Job actually agreed with Elihu. He agreed with him. He could hear and, and see that the truth that, that Elihu speaks regarding Job and God. Uh, uh, he, he, these things are palatable to him. He can see how he's kind of be, been led astray by his own suffering, his own pain, his own emotions. And he can see how he's given himself over to pride and self-righteousness. He, he sees it. His conscience is pricked. The spirit convicts him. If Job had disagreed with Elihu, there would be some kind of counter-speech here, some kind of refutation in the text. Maybe right before God begins to speak in chapter 38, we see none of that. Job just sits there on the ash heap and listens, absorbs, takes in. You understand, right? Because every time one of the other guys spoke, he spoke up in counter to it. And he says nothing to Elihu. Third, Elihu is shown to be wiser by how he is not rebuked by God in Job 42, verse 7. God verbally annihilates the three friends. It says he burned with anger against them for misrepresenting him, for misrepresenting his truth. But God says absolutely nothing to or about Elihu. Flip over to 42 and look at it. Not a word, not a peep against this young guy. Why? Because Elihu spoke truthfully and wisely. Young Elihu proved to be wiser than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar because his counsel was accepted by Job. This proves it. The fact that it was accepted by Job and authorized or not rebuked by God. That justifies a higher level of wisdom proves a higher level of wisdom in this young cat. Elihu's speech is recorded in several chapters, chapter 32 all the way through the end of 37. Big speech. In fact, it's one of the longest speeches in the book of Job. The longest speech was made by guess who? Job. <laughs> right? Oh, for chapter after chapter. In fact, it's recorded in chapters 26 through 31. There's your longest speech. It was made by Job. The second longest speech was made by Elihu in the text that we're going to begin to look at. 
And guess who made the third longest speech? God himself. Chapters 38 to 41. Isn't that interesting? Elihu's speech has at least six parts, including an introduction. And that's what we're going to look at today. I've got three A's for you. Please take your Bibles and turn over to Job 32. You'll be looking at the whole text, verses 1 through 22. Thank you for reading it earlier, Bruce. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, help us now as we focus on your word. Open our hearts, minds, ears um, to the truth. Apply it to us. Give us the ability through the Spirit to not only hear, but to comprehend and to believe and to obey. Help us this morning. Be glorified through this sermon, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off three Sundays ago, long time ago, before Shepherd's Conference, long time ago. Look at our first A. Number one, Elihu's anger. Anger. Verses 1 through 5, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Listen to what it says. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Stop there. As this new section begins, these three men, is referring back to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they stopped answering Job. It's the first thing the narrator tells us. They just, that was it. After 31, that's it. They're done. They're silenced. They're quiet. And the reason is given here, the reason they stopped was that they had basically exhausted their arguments, all of which had been offered to absolutely no avail. Right? They think or see Job as being righteous in his own eyes, and they, 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 they feel like they're, they're arguing or debating a fool now. Because anyone who thinks that they are righteous in and of themselves is a fool. Because our righteousness comes from Christ. It comes from the outside. It doesn't come from within. No level of good deeds performed by us secures any sort of righteousness or even produces any sort of righteousness. If, if you engage someone and, and you're having a debate with them and they see their self as, as, as self-righteous because they do a lot of good things or they follow a religion or whatever, and, and, and that's the position they hold, you're essentially arguing or debating a fool. Now, you don't have to call them that. You can certainly think it and say, how can I win this fool? Start praying. Give him the gospel. Talk about the righteousness of Christ. And, and they, he's, he's righteous in their own eyes, and they cease to answer Job. They're done because I, how, can you, how can you debate or interact with someone who thinks they're righteous? You just can't. You can't win with that person. You can't persuade them. Really, what the text is saying here is that Job's three friends, just they finally had nothing left to say. They were just gassed out. No more words. I, I just, we can't go anywhere with this guy. They were silenced because Job was righteous in his own eyes. Convinced of his own innocence, Job had been embroiled in defending himself. And he essentially refused to accept any counsel from them whatsoever, even though some of them said some decent things, especially Eliphaz. But, you know, I know I'm right, I'm righteous, just, just shut up, I don't want to hear it anymore. Okay, we won't talk to you anymore. That's what's happening. Verse 2a, then Elihu, the son of, this is actually Barakal, Obama, no, not Obama, 
It's Barackle. That's how it's pronounced. Barackle. I was calling it Bar Rachel. And Rachel's like, don't call me that. Right? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious and stop calling me Shirley. That's what she was saying. Stop, stop calling me Bar Rachel. It's Barackle. That's how, how it's actually pronounced. It's not Bar Rochelle. Barackle. And I, what did, I call it a buzzite, but maybe it's a buzite. Then Elihu, the son of Barackle, the buzzite, I like buzzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Stop there. So what's happening is the narrator, is, he's, he is introducing us really to the keynote speaker, the speech maker, Elihu. He was the son of Barakal, the Bu or Buzzite. Who were the Buzites or Buzzites? They were descendants of, guess who? Buzz. It's a person. I don't make up these Hebrew names. Buzz. I don't even think it's Hebrew, actually. Maybe it was. They were descendants of Buzz. Who was Buzz? A nephew of Abraham. Oh, now we're talking. Uh-huh. Buzz, a nephew of Abraham. What a name, right? Genesis 22, verses 20 through 21. In fact, the community in which Job lived, Uz, was actually named after another, another nephew of Abraham. Isn't that interesting? Uz was the older brother of Buzz. These parents are like, let's destroy our kids when they get to high school. You're Uz and you're Buzz. Now have fun. Both being sons of Nahor, N-A-H-O-R, Nahor, that's who? Abraham's brother. What, what is the narrator telling us by tying Elihu to some of his family? In particular, he's, he's telling us, the narrator is telling us that Elihu is essentially related to Abraham. And that basically means that Elihu is kind of special. Is not Abraham special? Huh? The father of the nation? Spiritual father of all believers in a sense? Elihu is tied and related by blood to Abraham. That's the significance here. The narrator also takes the time to mention the patriarch or possible father of Barakal. His name was Ram. What a name. One of his first name was Dodge. Come on. Oh, I, got, I got jokes today. Dodge Ram. What a name. Now, that would be a manly name in school. What's his name? His name is Ram. Okay, I'm not going to mess with him. What's your name? Goats. Just kidding. I love you. I love you, Miss, Miss Go Mrs. Goats back there. Ram. This is the family of Ram. I'm the family of Baker. How lame. The family of Ram. What a... Mm, huh? Ram. Yeah, Ram. Overemphasizing. Ram. Well, what, this, is, this is how they identified back then. I, I won't describe how people identify today. Ram, the family of Ram. What a manly name. At the end of verse 2a, it says, Elihu burned. Look at that. Burned. Look at the emphasis. Burned with anger. Then this guy was ticked. He was fired up. He was fired up. The answer to why he was so burning with anger and upset 
is given in the next two lines, 2B through 3. It says he burned with anger. I love that. He burned, almost like he's being consumed by righteous indignation. He is, he's hot. This guy isn't necessarily a hot-headed guy. He's just mad after listening all this time. I think I'd probably, if I was there, I'd probably be mad after listening to all these speeches too. But he was, he was mad. He was burning with anger. It says at Job because Job justified himself rather than God. That's righteous indignation, by the way. It says he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Stop there. So the narrator tells us that Elihu burned with anger at both Job and the three friends. He was angry with Job because of Job's pride and lack of restraint. While Job was initially correct in what he had said, his attitude went sour over time. What he said about God became brazen and distorted. And this this just infuriated Elihu as he's listening. And Elihu was equally, if not more so, angry at Job's three friends. Why? Because they had declared Job to be in the wrong without providing any substantive proof of his wrongness. Right? And this was their main problem. They, they thought he had sin in his life, and they're attacking that and arguing against that, but none of them could prove it. No witnesses. They, there, there was no witness to his sinfulness. I would liken the friends to maybe a bunch of bad deputy DAs, right? Evidentless prosecutors. And that's what they were. They just had no evidence, but they're trying to prosecute him on something. And what we're learning about Elihu's burning anger against them is that he was a man of deep conviction. He believed that if you are going to level a charge against a person, especially a brother in the Lord, you better have actual evidence and witnesses to back it up. In his mind, mere circumstantial evidence was not enough. He was a hard-proof kind of guy. And really, he's scriptural in a way because in order for you to... to, to um, expose somebody in some kind of wickedness, you had to have several witnesses. And, and these aren't people that just, well, I think it's happened. They witnessed it. It's t- spoken about this in Leviticus. You couldn't just level a charge without proof, and, and that's what they were doing. And it, it scorched him. Elihu was mad. He was very upset over this situation. And he was angry at the three friends for more than just basing everything on an allegation. He's angry with them for missing the forest for the trees. Their obsession with Job's past had caused them to miss the sin that was right before their very eyes, the sin of pride and self-righteousness. They're so focused on what might have been, they're not seeing what was. Maybe it's because they were descendants of Buzz. No, they weren't. They just couldn't see the sin that was apparent and right there before their very eyes. They're focused on something that might have existed. And that was their mistake. And Elihu is just, he's upset with them. He's upset with Job for displaying this pride and self-righteousness. What he hears as Job is defending himself is a narcissist. That's what he sees. That's what he hears. You ever crossed paths with one of those? It's a carnival. Lots of fun. 
he sees a narcissist who's self-absorbed, constantly touting his own innocence, constantly touting his own blamelessness, constantly touting his righteousness, and even calling the goodness and justice of God into question. He is mad at the friends. He's mad at Job and very mad. In the next two lines, we are told why Elihu waited to speak. He's not even speaking yet, by the way. He's not going to speak for a few more verses, but let's look at verses 4 to 5. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. There it is. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Here he is, mad again. Elihu waited to speak because he was the youngest friend in the whole group, the youngest guy there. And by the way, I don't think he was friends with the three. I think he was just friends with Job. I'm not sure that he knew the other guys very well. But he waits to speak because he is the youngest. He was the pup. In the ancient Middle East, it was customary for the older men to speak first. Probably still is in, in some parts of that region. And after the older guys would speak, then the middle-aged would speak, and then, and then the young lads who really weren't listened to much, they could speak. There was a, a pecking order. We would call it a social pecking order. And Elihu obviously honored that order. He patiently waited his turn as all the older guys going from middle age up to the old duffers, as Bruce would say. Waited for them. But after watching the friends fail miserably and finally give up, Elihu burned with anger because there was no answer in their mouths. The evidence against Job was clear as day to Elihu. He was being prideful and self-righteous. Elihu wondered, how do these guys not see this? They're, they keep focusing on the past and the potential for something, but how can they not, how can they not see the pride and self-righteousness now? He's wondering, you know, Job has spent the better part of six speeches boasting about his righteousness. The dude is obviously into himself. That's at least what it appeared to be. He's thinking, man, I, I, I hear him questioning God's goodness and his justice. I hear him demand that God, the God of the universe, the omnipotent almighty, give him a fair trial and clear him of all charges. Elihu is thinking, man, this guy obviously thinks that he's pretty important. Not that God is busy with things, because God does not get busy with things, but you can imagine, right, the God of the entire universe dealing with the full spectrum of creation needs to take time out of his schedule to meet with this guy and clear him of all charges. Anyone who would think like that has a too high view of their self. This is spinning through Elihu's mind. This is what he's wondering. This is why he's mad. Elihu burned with anger at the three friends because they had failed uh, to recognize and answer Job's glaring self-righteousness. I'm mad at you guys because you've been focused on something that may have happened and you can't prove it, but that's what you stick to and you can't see what's happening now. Don't you hear his pride? Don't you hear his self-righteousness? What's wrong with you guys? St. Patty's Day, you got cabbage in your ears? What's up? You ever been frustrated with somebody when you're interacting with them and they just can't, 
They can't see what's apparent and right there before their eyes, no matter how you try to display it. They can't grasp it. That's why he's angry, because that's the friends. They just, I know he sinned in the past. He's sinning now. He's angry. He's upset over these things. Number two, Elihu's awareness. This guy was very, very aware of everything that was playing out. This is mentioned in 6 through 14. We'll start at 6 and 7. And Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite, answered and said, and here's where he begins to speak, by the way, I am young in years, and you are aged. <laughs> I'm sure they weren't offended by that. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. Verse 7, I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. Elihu was aware of his young age. He was aware of the social pecking order. It's one of the things he was aware of. He was, in fact, timid and afraid to declare his opinion to the three friends and to Job prematurely because he knew that speaking out of turn was not only improper in that culture, but irreverent. I kind of wish in some ways we could go back to this. I know it'd be weird, but, you know, today's young people have no regard for people who've lived longer than them and always want to share their opinions and always want to share all their knowledge and vast wisdom of 13 years on earth. This would be beneficial for us to go back to these days, would it not? Shut up. You know the culture. You can't talk at all. But, 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 but. In antiquity, wisdom... And this is a thinking, the way they thought back in antiquity, wisdom belonged to the aged. Yeah, the guy with gray hair, the gray hair signifies that he's of age, signifies that he's wise. And so the young bucks like Elihu, they basically had to remain silent and wait their turn if they ever even got a turn to speak. In many cases, they didn't. In verse 7, Elihu seems to be quoting an old Edomite proverb because the land of Edom is where they're all from. Let days speak and many years teach wisdom. Doesn't that sound like a proverb? It might be an Edomite proverb. Those with more days, and the thinking is those with more days on earth, older, are going to have more wisdom, so let them speak first. That's the way you should interpret that line. Now, is this rule of thumb true? No, not necessarily. I'll give you an example. I think gambling is incredibly unwise, yet there is no shortage of old duffers and duffettes in our local casinos trying to strike it rich. Is that wise? No. You ever been to a casino? Maybe you don't want to admit it, but maybe you were, you know, in Tahoe and just like, oh, I don't, oh I'm in Harris. I don't know how I got in here. Next thing you know, you're pulling a slot, trying to make it look like you didn't make, mean to get in there. But it, one of the things that I've noticed is I've gone a few times, and, and I, I, I don't like spending my money on that because I never get it back. I lose. But I, 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 last time I was there, I was surrounded by elderly people. And I'm just looking around thinking, okay, gambling is unwise just as drunkenness is unwise. But here are all these older folks. I'm not trying to make fun of older people. I'm just saying there was a lot of older people in there. Old duffers and duffettes. Here we go, Mabel. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, just working it. 
What am I saying? What I'm saying is that age and gray hair doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. You can be an old fool. There are a lot of old fools in our culture. They don't believe in Jesus. They reject him. That's the height, pinnacle. Uh, uh, that is just the highest expression of, of foolishness, is rejecting the Savior and remaining in your sin willfully. That's just, that's foolishness. It's not a, a rule of thumb. I, I think it's pretty dumb that they even thought that way back then, but it's the way they thought. And some of the most foolish people, most unwise people I've met thus far in my 52 years of, of being on this earth were older. Some of the most foolish people I've ever known are older. Some in my own family. So don't think that because somebody's older that they're going to be more wise than the guy next to him who's younger. The fact is, is that Elihu just honored the system that was in place and you know, okay, we'll let the, the older guys speak and then the middle age, and then we'll let Phil, you know, because I'm basically middle-aged now. It's weird to say and surreal. Then we'll get to the younger guys. He's just honoring the system that's there. He paid attention to the pecking order. He even quotes a popular Edomite proverb, but he knew that age does not guarantee wisdom. Look at the next two lines. He knows it. Eight and nine. He says, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Wow. What a statement from a young guy. I'll tell you what, I'd probably still be in junior high ministry if I'd had one junior higher say something like this to me. They never came close to anything like that. He says, it is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Look at that statement. Who is he speaking to? A bunch of older guys. You think he's, they're fan favorites of his now? Wow. I love the narration. I love what he's saying. I love what he's expressing here. I mean, he, he is showing us that he is aware of wisdom's origin. He knows where true wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from age. It doesn't come from gray hair. He knows this. He states that it comes from the Almighty, not from length of years. He even calls wisdom, he calls knowledge, really they're synonymous here the way he's using it, but he, he calls wisdom the breath of the Almighty. What an expression. This is poetry, by the way. He even describes the transfer process, right, how, how one obtains wisdom wisdom. It's, it's when God breathes the breath of divine wisdom into a person's spirit. That is when they gain understanding. That is when they become wise. Wow, I want to hear more from this kid. Now this beautiful verse, verse 8, it also supports the doctrines of regeneration, the uh, doctrine of illumination. These are important biblical doctrines. God does not breathe divine life and light, which is always a metaphor for truth. If he does not breathe these things into spiritually dead sinners through the Holy Spirit, they are not going to come to spiritual life, nor are they going to obtain or attain spiritual understanding. 
The way that people come to spiritual life is by God breathing life into them through the Spirit. The way they come to understand the Scripture is by God illuminating and breathing understanding into them. This, this is, these are biblical examples of how this works. We do not have these things on our own. We are dead in our sins, dumb in our minds, and unless God breathes, we don't, we don't even respond. This verse is, verse 8 is wonderful, a wonderful support verse for regeneration and illumination, especially illumination. Truth is what? Spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14, apart from God's breath, apart from the Holy Spirit, and by the way, the Holy Spirit in Scripture is sometimes referred to as the breath of God, apart from God's breath, apart from the Holy Spirit, we will remain in spiritual death. We will remain in spiritual darkness. God must resuscitate, breathe us into life. This verse teaches this, although I don't think it's Elihu's broader meaning of it. He's just simply saying where wisdom comes from, not from age and not from down here. Verse 9, Elihu doubles down and declares that wisdom and understanding are not inherent in the aged. Being older does not mean you are wise. I've given you an example of that. Probably not the best example. There might be better examples. But just because you're older doesn't mean you're wise. And he doubles down on the fact that being older, it doesn't mean that you understand what is right. In other words, what he's saying is, is that age has nothing to do with it. Doesn't that sound like something a younger guy would say to older guys? Because what are they going to try to do as soon as he begins to speak? Shut him down because he's young. And he's saying, first of all, wisdom is not going to come through me. It's the breath of God through me. And clearly you guys don't possess it because you were not able to get anywhere with Job. This is what he's saying. Really, it was Elihu's way of calling Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar old foolish dummies. That's what he's doing in a very polite way. Wisdom does not come with age. It comes from God. Think of Josiah. How old was he when he became king? Eight years old. His father was assassinated. 2 Kings 22.1. At age 26, Josiah, this very young king. And how old was Elihu, by the way? We have no idea probably in his 20s, but at age 26, young Josiah wisely raised money to repair the temple. 2 Kings 22, 3-7. And during construction, they found the book of the law, and when Hilkiah, the high priest, read it aloud, what happened? Josiah wisely tore his robe, an expression of repentance, and called for a time of national repentance. 2 Kings 22, 8 all the way through chapter 23, verse 3. Amazing section of Scripture, by the way. Josiah, very young, wisely cleansed the temple from all objects of pagan worship and destroyed the idolatrous high, high places throughout the land, all the Asherah poles, all the uh, altars that were made for Baal, the worship of Baal. I know we call them Baal, but it's Baal. Stop doing that, Baal. He wisely deposed the priests of Baal, 2 Kings 23, 5, and previous kings had employed all these false prophets, and he goes through and gets rid of all of them. 
he wisely restores the observance of the Passover. Well, they hadn't done the Passover for a long time, and he realizes it's something we're supposed to be doing, and he puts it back in place for the whole nation. 2 Kings 23, 21 to 23. And then in 2 Kings 23, 25, it says this, Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This young guy was a dynamo. Josiah was young. Josiah was wise. Where did his wisdom come from? From him? No. Did his wisdom come from age? No. It came from God. God gave him wisdom. Where did Solomon's vast wisdom come from? God. It's the first thing he prayed for when he was installed as king. He didn't say, give me riches and everything else. He said, give me wisdom to lead your people. And he was given wisdom. And Solomon was reasonably young when he took office. Examples of young men being wise. Elihu was like Josiah, young but wise. Verses 10 to 11. Therefore I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened for your wise sayings. By the way, I didn't find any. While you searched out what to say, I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or answered, or who answered his words. Elihu was aware of being rejected by these men, so he tells Eli, he tells Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, please follow my example, is essentially what he's saying in verses 10 through 12. He wants them to sit back, he wants them to relax, he wants them to pay attention while he unpacks his own pearls of wisdom to the battered patriarch. He is essentially saying here in these handful of verses, I waited for you guys to finish, I listened to your wise sayings, I, I gave you my attention, yet none of you were able to refute Job or answer his words. It's my turn to speak, please extend the same courtesy to me. That's what he's saying. He's essentially, in a way, asking for permission to speak and then asking that they be gracious toward him as he speaks. Please don't just shut me down because I'm young. Not only was this guy young and, and wise, but he's actually kind of polite, kind of proper. And he was smooth because he could be polite and put the hammer on these guys at the same time. That's a talent. Right? Verses 13 to 14, he says, Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom, God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, speaking of Job right here, and I will not answer him with your speeches. What's he saying here? In verse 13, Elihu is essentially warning the three friends not to dismiss him before he starts speaking. He's concerned that they're immediately going to silence him, or at least try to. They might say something like this, and he kind of expresses it in a sentence. Elihu, we need you to go ahead and be quiet. We have found the right combination of wisdom. We have said all that needs to be said. Now we, we implore you, let God deal with Job for now on, not a man. He doesn't need to hear from men anymore. Let God deal with him. In fact, you should stop speaking to him because we've said everything that needs to be said, and we think the next step is for God just to go ahead and vanquish Job. It's in the text. Do you see it? Why are you going to talk to him? God's just going to smite him and kill him. 
That's what they're saying. Or that's at least what he's thinking they're going to say. I think this kid had wisdom. He's young, but he had he had wisdom. He was, he was polite in his own way and, and gave them room to be the older guys and, and the apparent wise and all that. But, I mean, this kid right here, he's discerning. He, he is arguing against them before they present their argument because he knows them well enough. I know the, what you're going to say. You're going to say, shut up and leave him in God's hands. We've done the work. He knows they're going to say this, or at least attempt to. That's verse 13. Verse 14, Elihu points to the fact that he has, he's had zero exchanges with Job thus far. He says none of Job's words were directed against him, right? Job has never even addressed this kid. Knowing that he's there, he's never even spoken to him. He's dealt with the three. And Elihu also mentions that he has absolutely no plan or desire to plagiarize their speeches, right? He's not going to use their words and their speeches, why would he use the speeches and words from three guys who failed and got nowhere with Job? Isn't that a great point? That's the point he's making. You guys got nowhere. I'm not going to copy you. Right? The definition of, an insanity is, of insanity is to expect change while doing the same thing. If I just parrot what you guys have said, I'm getting nowhere with Job. I'm not going to... Don't worry. Your precious words and wisdom will remain with you. That's what he's saying. See how he is? I love it. It's like, you know, hey, this guy's really polite. He just destroyed you guys. You couldn't even see that. Adventures in missing the point. It would be illogical for Elihu to use the, the, the speech of Eliphaz or the other guys. That would be an exercise in futility since they failed. He's aware of all of this. Now we move to three. Elihu's ambition this is his, he was burning with anger, but he had a burning ambition, a burning desire. We see this in verses 15 to 22. We'll look at 15 and 17, or through 17 first. He says this, they are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say, verse 16. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. Now, what is Elihu doing here? He is actually turning his attention from the three friends to Job, and he's speaking to Job right now. This is what he's doing. He's speaking right to Job. Your friends, look at your friends, Job. They're dismayed. They've got nothing more to say, no more words. And this fact is apparent not only by their silence from this point forward, but by the fact that their speeches had grown shorter and shorter over time. In fact, they, they even left the, the third wheel, Zophar, without a third speech, right? Two of those guys gave three speeches apiece. Zophar only gave two. Their speeches started out kind of longer and then got shorter and then and they got even shorter and then disappeared. They were working their way towards silence because their wisdom had been refuted by Job. And Elihu knows this. They had given up in frustration, and Elihu knows it. Elihu is mentioning this and speaking this to Job and saying, look, they, they gave up. They didn't get anywhere with you. They shut down. And he says right to Job while looking in his eyes, and Job is, 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 is pulverized and beat up and ugly to look at and still sick as a dog and got the worms and the sores. He's a real mess. 
And he looks at him and says, your friends have failed. Now they're done. Now they're silent. Shall I wait any longer to speak to you? This is what he says. He was ambitious and, and even anxious to share with the battered patriarch his wisdom and understanding. Now that the friends were silent and had no further reply, he must address Job. He must. Elihu confided, I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. I'm sure Job is staring at him going, here we go again. Uh, I've had enough, but I'm kind of interested in what you have to say. Verses 18 to 20, he's continuing to illustrate his ambition to speak. For I am full of words. <laughs> he's full of words. The spirit within me constrains me, he says. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins, ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. This is poetry. It's awesome. He literally tells Job, while looking at Job, that he's just bursting with ambition, bursting with an, an anxiousness to speak because he's just filled up with words. He's full of words. Imagine a swimming pool full of water. He's full of words, ready to go, locked and loaded. He says his spirit is constraining him. This is an interesting phrase. The Hebrew word for constrains is to suk, to suk. And it means to press. It means to drive. What is Elihu saying? The wisdom that God has put in me, it is pressing against me from the inside out. It is wanting to come out. It is pressing, boiling over and wanting to come out. This is what he's conveying. He even uses wine and wineskins in verse 19 to illustrate how he feels. When you put new wine into a wineskin, the fermentation process produces carbon dioxide, which causes expansion. And so your wineskin has to be newer and flexible, and it has to be able to move as the carbon dioxide fills the pouch of the skin. If the wineskin has no kind of ventilation on it, it would not allow leaking, but some of that carbon dioxide to release, or if it's old and, and stiff, what's going to happen as the wine is fermenting, as the grapes are fermenting? It's going to eventually burst and ruin the wine. This is why no one puts new wine into old wineskins, Mark 2.22. Elihu is saying, very simply, God has put wisdom in my belly like wine in a new wineskin, and I feel like I'm ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. This is what he's saying. Elihu was bursting, bursting, literally bursting with ambition. He could no longer keep his thoughts to himself. He had to speak up and correct the abuses of this long battery of discourses and debates. Last two verses, 21 and 22. He says this, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. Last verse, for I do not know how to flatter. What a wonderful thing not to know how to do. I do not know, I don't even know how to flatter. I'm not going to flatter, but I don't even know how to do that. 
And he says, else my maker would soon take me away. As Elihu spoke, he pledged, you know, as he was beginning to speak, he pledges not to show any partiality to any man, not even to Job. I'm not going to play favorites as I speak, is what he's saying. I'm not going to do that. He's saying, I'm not going to use flattery toward any person, including Job. Earlier, Job had accused his friends of showing partiality toward God against him. Job 13, 8, and 10. Elihu knows that, knows what they were doing, and he promises, I'm not going to do the same thing. I'm not going to show it toward God, toward you, toward anyone else. I'm not playing favorites. I'm not doing any of that. If Elihu were skilled in flattery and used this deceitful ability to address Job, because that's exactly what flattery is, it is a deceitful ability. If he had flattery skills and and used them uh, to address Job, then he believes that God, his maker, would soon take him away into what? Judgment. This is his conviction. This is his fear. Man, if I go about this thing wrong, I believe God is just going to carry me off in discipline or judgment. Elihu believed that the wrath of God would destroy him if he turned to flattery. Therefore, what follows would be, because he's made this pledge and vow, it would be just a straight declaration of the truth. No flattery, no partiality. I am coming to you, Job, with just truth. This is what he's saying. And I have no idea what Job is thinking. Maybe he's saying to himself, I I suppose we'll see about that, won't we? Let's find out. Closing. Elihu appeared to be at a disadvantage, didn't he? The three friends were many years his senior, yet his God-given wisdom and understanding made his counsel more applicable to Job's situation than the counsel of the other friends, the older friends. And we'll learn this as we walk through his speech. We know that Elihu looked to God, not man, for understanding Job's plight. I mean, this, this is where he starts. Wisdom to this matter comes from God. And if you remember and recall, threaded through the friend's speeches, they were always citing the experiences and things that were happening around them and the examples of others and other men. That can be useful and helpful, but do not derive and draw your wisdom just from experience. You need divine wisdom. You need wisdom from this book if you're going to give counsel. And then you are obligated to stick to it. And and that's the heart and attitude of Elihu and what makes him so special. But he was still disadvantaged. You remember Paul's letter to Timothy and, and telling him, I know you're young, but don't let people look down on you because of your age. You are a pastor trained by me, holy and set apart for the Lord. They're going to dismiss you because you're young, but don't pay any mind to that. You preach the word in season and out of season, and right? The Bible has examples of, 
of, of young men being raised up by God and then being looked down upon by their peers. Elihu looked to God, not to man, for understanding Job's plight, his situation. He listened carefully to Job's arguments, comparing them with what he knew to be true about God. There was no hidden sin in Job to be found, and that is why Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar failed. That's all they focused on. They made false assumptions and focused on the wrong thing, Job's past. Elihu, on the other hand, was like a discerning and skillful physician. He carefully listened to Job and came up with the correct diagnosis. Pride and self-righteousness had developed in the battered patriarch like cancer. And Elihu was determined to expose and eradicate this deadly disease with the Word of God. Why? Because it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4.12. He is a, a young whippersnapper, but he is wise beyond his age, fully dependent on the wisdom that God will provide for him or has, and fully devoted to using this as his scalpel. He knows. He's not concerned about what Job did in the past. He's concerned about what Job is doing right now with the pride and self-righteousness. And he's going to use the word to cut that cancer out. You may not know this, but a great part of preaching is exactly that. It's surgery. The question I have for us, including myself, is do we have pride and self-righteousness in us? Listen, nothing poisons and destroys a person faster than these twin enemies of the soul. Charles Spurgeon once said, The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Truer words were never spoken. You must understand that our doctor, our physician, is the law of God, His commandments. It reveals God's perfect holy standards and exposes our transgressions and, and unrighteousness. That's the purpose of the law. Even if you just want to boil the law down to the Ten Commandments, that's the, it is a doctor, a physician that says God is perfect and you are dead in sin. You break his laws. It is a good physician with a right diagnosis. And the gospel is the treatment, the antidote. It tells us, right, the law tells us about God's standards and how we've transgressed those standards. The gospel is the treatment. It tells us about the perfect life of Christ and the righteousness that He alone can provide. 
It tells us about the atoning death of Christ, how He died on the cross to pay for our sins. What a bloody, horrific death. Nobody here could have stomached what happened on Calvary. That bloody body on that cross, a representation of the lethality of sin. If you don't take sin seriously, remember the battered, pulverized body of Jesus that communicates to you in conjunction with God's law the seriousness of sin. We don't take sin seriously. Aren't you glad Jesus did? The gospel is the antidote. It tells us about the atoning death of Christ. It tells us about the burial and resurrection of Christ, how he was raised to life on the third day for our justification. And it tells us that those who repent of their self-righteousness, of their pride, of their lust, of their sexual sin, of just their love for sin in general or false religion or anything else, anyone who repents of that realizes the, the destructiveness of that and where they're headed, anyone who realizes and says, I don't want that anymore and puts their trust in Christ, the gospel says they shall be washed by the blood of Christ, clothed in His righteousness, brought into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters. Pride and self-righteousness will put a person in hell. But the finished work of Christ can rescue and make even the most vile sinners, the most vile self-righteousness, most vile prideful, most vilely deceptive people, the worst of sinners, the worst of sinners, the worst of sinners, the worst, Charles Manson, Dahmer, Hitler, the worst. Do you understand? The worst. The gospel promises that those who repent and trust in the finished work of Christ, even the most vile, that gospel, that work of Jesus will transform those sinners into new creations, purified, sanctified, holy, and useful for the kingdom of God. Repent and trust in Christ now. Don't wait any longer and quit lying to yourself. Some of you in this room are not Christians, and you think you are because you've played church your whole life. Today is the day of reckoning. God is mercifully calling you to himself now. Drop the charade, repent, trust in Christ like never before. Be made new. Be rescued from the wrath to come. Quit playing fast and loose with sin. The wages of sin is death. It always kills. But Christ gives life and gives it in abundance. He makes new people out of crappy old dead people. He did it to this terrible sinner. If he did it for me, he can surely do it for you. Hallelujah. Trust in him now. Believe in Jesus. He who has ears, let him hear.